Good morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of John. We're going to be in John 16 today. If you do not have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. You could grab one of those. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, uh, John 16 is on page 902 of the Bibles that are there in the chair racks. I forgot to look up the page number this morning when I, in the first service, and so everybody was just on their own because I couldn't give them a page number. Because I'm so used to being in Genesis where I can just say, just start at the beginning and start paging and you'll be there very soon. If you're going to do that with John, you're going to be paging through for quite a while, and by the time we're done, you'll be there. So, John 16 is where we're going to be, page 902 in the Bibles that are in the chair racks. Human beings have long desired to transform the mundane and ordinary things of the world into the extraordinary. In ancient times, and until somewhat recently, in a variety of different cultures, people have experienced, uh, experimented with something called alchemy. You have probably heard or learned about alchemy somewhere along your educational journey, but alchemy is this, this mix of science and philosophy that when mishmashed together, there were people who believed that there were secret and mysterious ways that could be discovered to transform one substance into another substance. The belief was that through a series of secret and mysterious steps that could be discovered, you could take something like lead or copper, you could subject it to these things, and it would come out on the other side as something like silver or gold even. And alchemy was not this obscure pursuit that people in the far reaches of the internet were playing around with. Somebody like Robert Boyle, the father of modern chemistry, dabbled in the discipline of alchemy. Sir Isaac Newton had books in which he was experimenting with alchemy. The ability to transfer something lesser into something greater has been something, as I said, that has captured the human imagination for a long time. Well, the passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at together this morning in John 16 contains a kind of alchemy. It contains a kind of transformation of something ordinary to extraordinary that only Jesus himself can do. But before we dive into our text today in John 16, I want us to just briefly take a couple of minutes to get our bearings. This passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at, beginning in verse 16, is located in a larger section of John's Gospel, John's biography of Jesus, that is known by many students of the Bible as the Farewell Discourse. The Farewell Discourse. And many people believe that the Farewell Discourse begins in chapter 13 and verse 31, and goes all the way through until the end of chapter 16, when then it's followed by Jesus' high priestly prayer in the garden in chapter 17. A discourse is simply a discussion, it's a talk, 
And the farewell discourse is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. It is Jesus' words to his disciples as he is saying goodbye to them. He is teaching them. He is preparing them for a time when he is no longer present with them. He is preparing them for what he refers to as the hour of his glorification. And the hour of Jesus' glorification is no less than his humiliation on the cross. In chapter 14, he promises them that even though he is going to leave them, he is going to send a helper to them. That helper is none less than the Holy Spirit himself who will indwell them. He says in verse 15, he tells them that he is the vine. They are the branches, and as long as they stay close to Him, as long as they remain in Him, as long as they abide in Him, they are going to bear all kinds of fruit. He also warns them in chapter 15 that the world hates them, but He assures them that they can take heart because He has overcome the world. And Then when we get to chapter 16, Jesus returns to the subject of his departure, and he tells them that he is going to be leaving them. So let's pick up our reading now that we've kind of taken a few moments to get our bearings. Let's pick up our reading in John chapter 16 and verse 16. (coughs) The Word of God says this. This is Jesus speaking. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. Now we didn't, haven't read that, but earlier in the chapter Jesus has told them that he is going to the Father. So the disciples are asking themselves questions about this. So verse 18, so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So the disciples are struggling as they were. Jesus has been warning them. We see this throughout John's gospel. Jesus has been warning them that his time is coming, his hour is coming, that that they're not just going to ride off into the sunset the way the disciples are anticipating, but that Jesus is actually going to be killed. And he's reminding them of this fact again. And he tells them, in a little while, you're not going to see me. And then in a little while, you're going to see me again. And he's most likely talking about his coming death and resurrection. And just a little bit, he's going to be taken away from them to be crucified. And then just in a little bit longer, three days to be exact, he is going to see them again. But they are struggling to understand this. And they're asking themselves what he means, and he knows this. And so Jesus takes the time to explain himself a little more, but in explaining himself, He focuses less on the nuts and bolts of exactly what he means by a little while and a little while and this is what it's going to look like and this is is a calendar of how this is going to happen. That's not what Jesus chooses to spend his time on. What Jesus uh, 
instead chooses to spend his time on is what he says in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. And the world around you is going to be rejoicing. Jesus is leveling with them here because Jesus wants to prepare them. He wants them to know that there are some significant sorrows coming their way. Sorrows that they have not yet been able to anticipate. I'm not exactly sure of the timeline, but but Jesus is going to be sharing a Passover meal with them. And when he shares that Passover meal, this great celebration that God's people gather together to celebrate each year of their deliverance from Egypt, they're going to be gathering together to celebrate the Passover, and it's at the Passover that Jesus is going to break it to them that one of them is going to stab him in the back. So they've, they've spent almost every day together, these 12, for the past three years. They have had some incredible experiences together. They've left a lot. They've left their livelihoods. They've left everything to follow Jesus. These, these guys are close, and Jesus is, telling, is going to tell them something that is going to bring them much sorrow, that one of them is going to betray him and them. They're going to soon be spending some time together in the Garden of Gethsemane. And though a bunch of the disciples are not going to be able to stay awake for all of this, they're at least going to be able to see that when Jesus returns to them and asks them to pray with him, they're going to see that Jesus is distressed In his prayer before he goes to the cross, he's asking the Father if if there's some way for this cup to pass from him, if there's some way that he doesn't have to go through the suffering that he's about to experience. And, And this stress, this distress that he is going through manifests itself in his body. He is is sweating. It's like great drops of blood. They're experiencing that sorrow. They are going to experience the sorrow of the peace of this garden disrupted by the one betraying them, bringing a cohort of armed guards to take Jesus into custody. They are going to experience weeping. They are going to experience sorrow as as they wait and wonder as Jesus is in custody, is being questioned and wondering what in the world is going on. Most of us have had some sort of experience in our life where we've, been, we've had some sort of uh, uh, bad news or difficult news uh, delivered to us, and, and now we're waiting for the result of that. And it's very distressing while you wait to hear the results of this news, and they're wondering what's going to happen. They are going to experience perhaps the greatest sorrow of all as they see their Lord lifted up and crucified in front of their very eyes between two criminals. They are going to experience that sinking feeling as they see him breathe his last breath, wondering if perhaps everything they thought they knew was actually untrue. Jesus understood that great sorrow was coming their way. And Jesus wanted them to be prepared for that reality. 
But Jesus doesn't simply prepare them for the sorrow because we, we, we stopped our reading in the middle of verse 20. But if you look back at verse 20 and we read that entire verse again, Jesus says, <coughs> Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. You will be sorrowful. The people around you are going to be rejoicing, but your sorrow is going to turn into joy. Jesus is preparing them for the pain that's coming. He is preparing them to to weep and lament, but he is also reminding them in this moment that he is the great alchemist. And he gives them this promise Their sorrow, a sorrow that they have not even yet begun to conceive of, is going to turn into a joy that they could not yet even conceive of. And Jesus gives an illustration of this, or he gives an example of this. He says, this is is, is kind of like this, and he uses a metaphor that's going to uh, ring true for our mothers. And if you think, well, I'm not a mother, so that's not going to resonate with me, can I remind you that Jesus gives this illustration to a bunch of dudes who have no chance ever of actually being able to personally identify with this. But here's what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So what Jesus is doing is telling them that the joy is going to be so great that the greatness of the sorrow is going to be eclipsed by the greatness of the joy that follows. And when Jesus uses this metaphor, he is drawing on a rich Old Testament use of this very metaphor. D.A. Carson notes this, that the combination of intense suffering and relieved joy at childbirth is, in the Old Testament, a common illustration of the travail God's people must suffer before the immense relief and joy brought about by the advent or coming of the promised messianic salvation. Now, one of the things that we refer to babies as sometimes is we will sometimes refer to a newborn baby as a little bundle of What? Joy. We call a baby oftentimes a little bundle of joy. We never refer to them, at least not in my experience, hear hear of them as little products of pain. I'm going to guess that regardless of what your birth experience was like, whoever handed you that baby in the moment says, congratulations, Here is your product of much pain. But they are, aren't they? You moms know this very well. Nine months of pregnancy. I'm sorry, there's pregnant people in the room, and here I am drawing it all out. (laughs) Nine months of pregnancy is a long time. Okay, there are 
There are animals that have like two or three week pregnancies. I wonder why we can't get a little bit of that. That's almost an entire year of your life being pregnant. And there is the initial excitement of pregnancy and, and there, are the, there is the ultrasound that you get and the ultrasound that you pin up on the refrigerator that, that the doctor has told you what this is and you're like, if you're like me, you're like, I don't see anything of what you're talking about, but I see that you wrote girl on it and that's good. But there's that initial excitement that comes to us with a pregnancy But then for many women, there is that uncertainty of carrying the child along the way. Many women and couples have losses along the way, as we have had, and many of you have had, that that fill each pregnancy with a sense of suspense. And each pain and each hurt makes us wish we could run to the doctor. Maybe the doctor could live at our house, just test us every moment to assure us. And then there's the morning sickness that for many lasts a good three months and sometimes longer. There's the constant need to buy bigger in clothes and the new interest in clothes with elastic in them. There's the swollen ankles. There's the cravings for very specific foods that need to be procured at a time of night in which it is difficult to procure said foods. There's the sensitivity to smells. You can no longer cook or or have somebody in the house cooking a particular thing because it makes you nauseous. There's having to sleep on your side for forever. And you haven't even delivered the baby yet. Again, my apologies to the pregnant ladies in this room. I got to make the Bible point. And after all that, what follows is 12, 24, 36 hours labor. And that's in our present age where mortality rates are pretty high. Did I say that the wrong way? The opposite of that. The good thing. (laughs) Living. certainly wasn't like that in Jesus' day. So after all that has transpired over the course of a year, or perhaps for some couple several years even trying to get to that point, after all that transpires, somebody places that beautiful little baby in your arms and calls it a little bundle of joy. And it is. Why? Why? Because the moment that happens, the intensity of the sorrow and the nine months of discomfort and the hours of labor are eclipsed by a joy in this new life that is so significant that somehow it is able to overshadow everything that just happened. Jesus is telling them that His hour is coming. In just a little while, they are going to experience some of the most profound sorrows that they have ever experienced, but he's giving them hope 
that that sorrow is going to be turned into the joy in the same way that a mother who delivers a baby no longer remembers the anguish because of what has just been placed in her arms. The truth that I want us to see from this passage today is just as true for disciples of Jesus now as it was to the disciples that he first delivered it to. And it's this. Jesus transforms sorrow into joy. I know I say a lot of simple, duh stuff. That's my lane. I found it. (laughs) Say simple things that the Bible says and just say them again and again until you're dead. But don't miss how profound that statement is. Don't miss how profound it is that Jesus is able to take sorrow and turn it into joy. Because I'm willing to bet that there is some sorrow in this room where that statement sounds about as ludicrous as alchemy. There are some things I can believe that Jesus can turn, there are some sorrows I believe that Jesus can turn into joy, but but not this thing. But the Bible tells us, Jesus from his own mouth tells us that he is able to turn sorrow into joy. How is Jesus able to take some of the most profound sorrows of your experience and transform those things when no one else can into the exact opposite. How is, he able to, how is he able to do that? Transform sorrow into joy. And I've got three answers to that question that I believe are rooted in this text. The first one is this. Jesus is able to take profound sorrow and transform it by transforming our sorrows into a living joy. He does this by taking our sorrows and transforming them into a living joy. Joy. If you're there in John 16, look at the first half of verse 22. Jesus says, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice. Now, I've already highlighted for you the profound sorrows that the disciples were undoubtedly going to feel in the next few uh, hours and days to to come. But this weeping, this sorrow, is certainly not limited to the 11 disciples. You see, the gospel, one of the things that's interesting about the gospel accounts of the resurrection is that that the, the, the people who have the privilege of being the first to discover the reality of the resurrection are women. We would think that Jesus' closest disciples would be the ones that have the first opportunity to look into the tomb, but it's not them. It's the women who are also disciples, who are also devoted to Him, who also know Him and love Him and are following Him. And one of the things the Bible tells us is that it's women that go after the Sabbath to do the final touches of preparation for His body for, for burial. And one of the things the Gospel tells us is that when they arrive and find the tomb empty, it just brings another level of weeping. Now you've got to think that they're coming early in the morning to that tomb with eyes that are, are not still not dry. 
because of everything that has just transpired. And now here they're, they're trying to do our, the, the futile things that we do in death to say goodbye. The little rituals that we have that, that try to bring closure to something that was not meant to be. And here they are, and the Gospels tell us that there they are weeping when an angel of the Lord delivers to them some most welcome news. And when they find out, when they find out that the tomb is not empty because his body has been stolen, that the tomb is empty because he's alive and he's walked out of it, the Bible tells us this in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 8. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. This is Jesus keeping his promise. He told them, you're going to weep, you're going to sorrow, you're going to lament, but your sorrow is going to be turned into joy. And when these ladies start to wrap their minds around the fact that the impossible has just become true, they experience that great joy. Jesus' disciples, closest disciples, experience the same thing when he appears to them and shows them his hands and his feet. In Luke chapter 24 and verse 41, it says, And while they still disbelieved for joy, which is a phrase I absolutely love, disbelieving for joy. This is, this is, this is the phrase that you would use to describe people who see it, but still can't wrap their minds around what they're seeing. I know he's here. I see his hands. I see his feet. I see the wounds in his side. I'm super happy about this, but I still I don't know how to explain it. That's what it means to disbelieve for joy. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? You see, Jesus had told them the truth. They were going to experience a profound sorrow that sorrow was going to be turned into joy. And the joy that they experienced at the triumph of the resurrection far surpassed and quickly surpassed the sorrow they felt before and during. Because what can't be if Jesus can't be killed? Because Jesus was alive, he could never be taken from them Again, And the fact that they served a living Jesus prepared them for the coming sorrows that they were going to encounter as they, in the words of Jesus, took up their own crosses and followed in his footsteps. You see, when Jesus told them that they were going to experience a joy that would far surpass the, the sorrow that, he, that they had experienced, Jesus was not telling them it's going to be really difficult for a few days, but after that, you're going to experience an unbroken joy that will, will go the rest of your lives and you'll never feel sadness again. These guys are going to go on to experience persecution. These guys are going to go on, some of them, to experience martyrdom. They're going to experience all sorts of sorrows as they follow in Jesus' footsteps carrying their own crosses. The reality of a living Jesus allowed them to set their sights on a joy that was set before them. 
as the Bible says, Jesus himself does. So, followers of Jesus today, we too live in a day that is filled with sorrow. And we live in the reality of that we have the comforter, that we have the promised Holy Spirit living within us. The truth of the matter is we still await laying eyes on our Savior. We can be assured that He is in heaven right now at this very moment, interceding at the right hand of the Father for people like us. But the reality is we are still looking forward to a day when we will see Him. We live in a day that's filled with sorrow. But I want you to be encouraged, Christians, because we're going to see Him in just a little while. The Christians throughout this world are experiencing persecution themselves. They're going to see him in just a little while. Though Jesus' brother James told us that we are going to experience trials of various kinds, and though you may be experiencing one of those trials at this very moment, and it seems hopeless, and he seems so far away, Jesus understands the sorrow, and he wants you to know Your sorrow is going to turn into joy because you're going to see him in just a little while. Hold on. Because Jesus is the great alchemist that takes sorrow and transforms it into joy. And it's a joy that comes from the fact that he is alive and that he can't die and that he can't be taken from us, and that he's coming back for us. There's a second way Jesus takes profound sorrow and transforms it. He does so by by transforming our sorrow into a secure joy. He transforms our sorrows into a secure joy. Look at the second half of verse 22. Jesus says, and no one will take your joy from you. God has given us many earthly joys. And we receive those good gifts from his hand as our loving Heavenly Father. The Bible tells us that every good thing that you have that brings you joy is a gift of a good God. So you can count through your blessings, whether it be experiences or abilities or places or people or or things or activities. These are things that have the opportunity to bring you joy and are good gifts from your hand. But as we know, those earthly joys are always at risk in a broken world. Job said it. Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus warned us about what we ought to invest in, and he says, don't, don't invest in treasures on earth where moth and rust are going to corrupt and corrode, where a thief could come in and steal, even if you have the best ring home security system, they can still get by it. 
Jesus says instead, lay up for yourself, invest in treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't corrupt and corrode and where thieves can't break in and steal. One of the feelings that we carry with us as we go through life is just the precarious nature of it. The precarious nature of the things that we have or the people that we love. As a very real example today, a mother can rejoice over the child or the children that God has given her, yet experience a sorrow with that at the loss of her own mother or the lack of relationship with her own mother, or the waywardness of her own children. All of our joys are precarious. They are tinged with sorrow. And Jesus comes in and makes a promise to us that He can supply us with a joy that can't be taken. And the reason He can supply us with a joy that can't be taken is that that joy is rooted in His living self. Our temptation as always is to take the gifts and value and worship the gifts rather than the giver. To root our joy people, what we do, or the future we have planned, or any number of things that just can't bear the weight of our expectations for joy. Your job can be taken. Your safety and security can be taken. Your children can be taken. Your health can be taken. You and I are capable of losing every single thing that we have. Which is why Jesus goes to such great, such great lengths to remind us that there is a joy that he supplies that can't be It's a joy that can't be touched by changing markets or death or theft or any of the things that our safety of our joy is so often rooted in. I think one of the great sorrows of life, whether we're aware of it or not, is just the constant state of insecurity that we live in. Jesus tells us that that sorrow is one day going to be forgotten, surpassed, obliterated even by the security of a joy that has been secured by a resurrected Jesus. So Christians, let us enjoy the gifts that God has given us but let us root our joy in the safety and security of a risen Christ. There's a third way that Jesus is able to take profound sorrow and transform it into joy. And he does so in the third place by transforming our sorrow into a complete joy. Look with me at verse 23. 
Jesus goes on to say, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, last phrase, that your joy may be full. Now there's lots of things that we could try to sort out in these verses, but that's beyond the scope of our message this morning. Suffice it to say that in this life, most things fall short of complete joy. You understand this. How many of us have have had this, this, this thing that we wanted to happen, or this thing that we'd worked for, or this relationship, or this experience, or this ability, or this opportunity, or whatever it is you fill that in, and you are just focused 100% on getting there to that person, or to that thing, or that experience, or whatever it is, because you believe that when you get there, it will, there will be a payoff. We're all hunting for joy. As I said earlier, nothing can bear the weight of those expectations. It does not matter how wonderful the opportunity is, how great that person is that you've just met, whatever that relationship is, it doesn't matter what it is, it never pays off the way we expect it to. It never brings us a fullness of joy, a satisfaction that says, this is enough. Nobody can do it. No thing can do it. No opportunity can do it. And there are no doubt people listening in this room, where immediately that thing comes to your mind, that thing that you want, if I just have this, it'll, I'll, I'll get there. But doesn't your own experience tell you that you've been here before? And that thing that's just around the corner is going to turn into another corner and another corner and another corner because it doesn't matter how wonderful that thing is and there are so many wonderful things. They, they don't give it all to you. Think of a, a couples who are married, and they've got joy from that marriage, but they, they want the completeness that they would feel from, from having a child, and yet they can't. And so in their hearts, they sense an incompleteness. Friends, neither accomplishments, nor relationships, nor possessions nor experiences are going to provide you what you're looking for. Everything and everyone falls short of fullness, completeness of joy. But Jesus promises a joy that isn't like that. It is of a different kind than every other joy that you can receive in this life. It is a joy that is promised to give a completeness and a fullness. Earlier in the farewell discourse, in the previous chapter, in John chapter 15 and verse 11, Jesus told his disciples this, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, 
and that your joy may be full. One of the things that Jesus prays in John chapter 17 and verse 13 is that, is that His joy would be in His people. He is going to the Father before He is going to be crucified. And one of the things that's at the very top of His prayer list is that you would be joyful. That, that the excruciating experience that he is about to go through in being nailed to a cross and giving his life, he's praying that that would bring you joy. And so why are we seeking it in other things? Let me be clear. Jesus understands now as then that all of our joys in life are, are tinged with sorrow and we would like to experience the fullness of joy that comes with a perfection of relationship with Christ, and we don't have it because we're distractible and we're sinful and we can't really see him in all of his beauty, and so we value all kinds of other things. We live in a broken world, and, and God does not expect us as we experience loss to not weep to not lament, and to not feel sorrow. But what Jesus promises us is that he can supply for us the fruit of the Spirit, joy. If we abide in the vine, if we remain in him, we'll bear fruit. One of those fruits is joy. One of the things Jesus does promise is that there can be a bedrock under market volatility. That Jesus can give us a joy that is foundational for us. And then he promises, in a little while, you're going to see me. And the Bible tells us that when we see him, we're going to be like him. Because we're going to see him as he is for the first time. And we are going to experience a joy that you cannot even begin to imagine. It is a joy that is going to make the sorrows of this life feel like they have the distance of a dream. Now, I don't know about you. I've got a hard time believing that. I can believe it for all sorts of things. All sorts of minor inconveniences and difficulties and things like that. But I'm guessing that some of us have something in our minds that is so profoundly sorrowful, that is so unthinkable, that is so painful, that we are saying in our hearts right now, I get what you're saying, but I don't think there's enough joy to overcome that sorrow. And I'm telling you, I don't understand it either. But Jesus told us that He can transform even the most profound difficulties of our lives into a lasting, complete, full joy that can never be wrenched from your grasp. 
And so our responsibility is to say, I don't know, but I'll trust that what you say is so. And that the joy that awaits is something I can't even begin to comprehend. For those of you who are with us this morning and don't have a saving relationship with Jesus, maybe your mom dragged you here on Mother's Day. Fine. It's hard to come up with an excuse on Mother's Day. (laughs) Okay, Mom, I'm here. I'll do the stuff. Hopefully it's short. You came to the wrong church if you're looking for short. I'm told. I want to invite you to a relationship with Jesus through repentance and faith. Jesus went to the cross not just so that we could have our sins wiped clean and so that we could have our relationship restored with him, though he did that and it certainly does that. But I told you what Jesus was praying the night before he goes to the cross He was praying that his followers experience his joy. And maybe you came here to appease your mom this morning. Good job for doing that. But while I got you, I want to remind you, the stuff where you're looking for joy at in life, it's not going to happen. It will give sparks. There's too much sorrow here for a job or a relationship or an experience to overcome it. I love you enough to tell you it ain't going to happen. Jesus offers you something much better. And our prayer, our invitation to you this morning would be that you would repent of your sins and that you turn to Christ, and that you experience the kind of joy that doesn't come through this. It can only be received by faith. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, as I've said, Jesus never promised us the absence of tribulations. In fact, sometimes he tells us it's going to get worse before it gets better. What Jesus does promise us is a joy that can overcome that sorrow. The Bible says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That can be our present experience. We can rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and, and filled with glory because we are in the process through the pain of obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. It's just a little while. You're going to see them. Like a mother in labor, you're going to experience sorrow. But Jesus told us, Your sorrow is going to 
turn into joy. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the promises which we have contemplated from your word this morning. If everyone else's heart is like mine, it's very difficult for us to see how some of the things in life could be overcome and transformed into the experience of joy. But I also would not have believed that someone could rise from the dead, and that happened. So I pray that you would give us a confidence in the living Savior this morning. I pray that you would grow joy in us as we stay close to you. That joy would not simply numb us to the sorrows of life, but that it would be a bedrock, a foundation that underlies it all. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hope to the future that we are going to receive the outcome of our faith, the saving of our souls in a joy that we cannot even imagine. Lord, if there is somebody here who does not know that joy this morning, would you give them humility and faith to turn from their sin and to Christ? We ask it in his name. Amen.